The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And we have our first guest this week joining us for our three episodes this week. A, ho- a co-host of two podcasts that I have uh, have a lot of fun being on in the past, Marvel Star Wars Explorers and Reopening the Wormhole. Welcome Sam Stovold to New York. All right. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be your first guest, and I hope I can do this movie proud. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all, Sam. The pressure is unreal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be, but it's certainly not as much pressure as there is on the Escape from New York universe in 1988. I can tell you that because as we we are at minute four in our movie, uh, we finally are done with the opening credits. We get a minute here where we find out at the beginning of the minute what exactly happened in 1988. We have a little cliffhanger for you at the end of last week. And we end with seeing that something's going on in 1997. But we won't find out quite yet about that until tomorrow. It's a minute of... It's it's an incredible minute here because it's one of those rare movies-by-minute minutes where it's a self-contained minute. It actually has like a start and an end, and it doesn't cut out in the middle of something. It didn't really begin in the middle of something. And it's one minute of pure exposition setting up the entire Escape from New York universe. That's very interesting. And before we get into the the details of the minute, um, I wondered what you both think of, does this work for you, having the movie start out with just a minute straight of exposition setting everything up in this manner? Hmm, that's a great question. Sam, what's your thought on that? Um, I think it's a risky move. It's not always uh, something that a movie can pull off, but I think when it's done well, it's like the best possible thing you can do because it means that you don't have to like mm, spend any time in the rest of the movie trying to establish the world. It's if they successfully establish the world immediately right at the beginning, we're free to just drop in and tell a story. It doesn't have to be like the origin of the escape from New York universe. It's just the universe already exists. And here's a story in it. And there's been a couple modern movies, uh, recent movies that I've loved that have done it well. Um, it can be clumsily handled, but I I love it. And in this movie, I think it's great. Yeah, I agree. I really like the setup for this. In fact, it leaves me with a lot more questions than it really answers for me. Um, the other thing I like about this is that there's a map here. And so there's a part of me that really feels like, I don't know if you can think back to like a heist movie where there's a a classic scene where somebody rolls out a map on a table and all the players look at the map and they start talking about how do we get in? How do we get out? What's the game plan for that? And that's a lot of what this feels like, even though it's a, it's a setup. So you can understand that something really bad went down in 1988 and we don't really understand what that is, but this is more of, we're going to dictate to you, up front why this is such an impenetrable and kind of a weird situation without actually explaining 
all the backstory about what took place to get here. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I, absolutely. I I, th- I think it works too. I agree with Sam that it's it was a, it's risky doing it. I think that the key is that it's it's executed well, but also I think the key is that it's only one minute. Trying to think off the top of my head, other movies that have done this at the beginning, and I'm I'm having some trouble. I feel like the Brendan Fraser movie, The Mummy, had like a prologue that sort of set up the whole backstory of The Mummy, and it just I remember it lasting way too long. Oh yeah, um, for sure. And so I feel like you know the key is they they just you know breaking this thing down to as you know getting the key information in and just not wasting any time and having it be as short as possible. And I think that that's why. It works so well as it's just one minute. You're not sitting there with two, three minutes of like, all right, can we just get to the <laughs> It is beautiful, like you said, the way that it is so like wonderfully contained in this minute. I was shocked when I watched it. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I cannot believe how that worked. Like Perfect. literally starts with the years on uh bookending either side. Um a couple of examples of like some of my absolute favorite movies from the last couple of years actually did a similar thing, but I don't think they were ever as contained but um for instance i don't know if you guys saw that movie dread from i don't know like five somewhere between five and ten years ago yeah 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 totally and that it's sort of a similar thing where it starts out with just uh judge dread giving like this voiceover like explaining mega city one and uh just sort of like the way the world is and then it's the same type of thing that i was talking about in this movie where we've got the exposition out of the way and then we're free to just drop into a story that doesn't need to be explaining the world and i felt like fury road also did a really good job of Mm. sort of elegantly just giving us sort of this blast of exposition right at the beginning and then allowing the story to just breathe on its own Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i was thinking about ghost in the shell the 1995 animation does that pretty well about explaining that there's a little bit different um, nation state situation and some of the technology of the world. So you have that context going in um, blade runner does that too. So you understand what replicants are before you start out and they do right, the, right. Uh, the assessment. Waterworld did it, but that movie's horrible. So <laughs> <laughs> there are, yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of examples we could find of movies that don't do it well. But, um, I, I don't, this is, not one of them. I I love it, and but I do think, like you said, this is like the the sort of pure example where it's so succinct. Like even mm-hmm. those two that I mentioned, I don't think they are contained within one minute. The the graphics, the accompanying graphics, are beautiful. I love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, be, before we uh, start going through uh, the content of the minute, uh, let's talk about the voice that we hear, which. I can't believe as many as long as I've been watching this movie and as many times have I've seen it, I did not know until I started researching for this podcast that this is the uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis doing this narration. Hey, that's isn't that awesome. crazy? Like, I yeah. have no idea. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. Do you have a sense of why she wouldn't want to be credited for this? I don't know. I mean, obviously it was done because she'd been in Halloween with John Carpenter. And, you know, it might be even just, who knows, it might have even been just him asking her for a favor. It's not like she's a character in the movie. You know, every once in a while you do get these things in these movies where you'll have someone who's famous will have a very small role or a cameo and their name won't be in the credits. So, I mean, it's not unheard of. Who know you know who knows what you know what the real reason why is but uh, yeah her her name does not appear anywhere connected with this movie got to find it on the internet that she did this super interesting I feel like a lot of times when that happens the actors are specifically saying that they 
they don't want to be credited. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Otherwise, they'd probably be like, why are you not crediting me? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe it just, like, her star was on the rise. And she's like, you know, you're my friend. I like, like, love what you've done for me and Halloween and everything like mm-hmm. that. But she didn't feel it necessary to almost distract from the movie by attaching her name to it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. No, it totally does. All right, so let's get into the content here. What did happen in 1988 is the crime rate in the U.S. rises 400%. Whoa. Uh, and so in, just in case there's anyone listening that's, that's not necessarily mathematically inclined, I did a little math. I put my old good high school math uh, abilities to work here from 25 years ago. So the movie was made in 1980, came out in 1981. And uh, so I looked at the, the, a couple of years leading up to that point and including that point of what actually went on in the U.S. From 77 to 78, I, I looked, I found a site that had total number of cri- criminal acts in the country. So from 77 to 78, it went from 10.9 million to 11.2. The next year, 11.2 up to 12.2. Wow. From 79 to 80, when the movie was filmed, 12.2 to 13.4. And then from 80 to 81, when the movie came out, it it almost stabilized 13.41 to 13.42. And the rate actually dropped from 1982 to 1984. But by 1988, which is the year that we're looking at in these graphics, it was up to 13.9 million. So that's that's what happened in the real world. Now, for the 400% to be accurate by 1988... It would have had to have jumped to more than 53 million criminal acts, as opposed to the real-life 13.9 million. Wow. So, you know, this movie is not just saying that the U.S. Is, has turned into a shithole. <laughs> it's turned into a major shithole. <laughs> it seems uh, almost impossible to conceive of. <laughs> yes. It really does. Yeah, because, I mean, what's the population of the U.S. back in that? Was that like 200 million or something? Probably so you're like, talking yeah. about... Yeah, maybe like 250 or something like that, sure. Yeah, so that's a pretty large percentage of the actual population committing crimes, yes. you know? I guess my question was like, what do you guys think would have happened to cause crime to go up by 400%? Oh my god, that's what I love, is that they just don't even give you any clue. Like, yeah, that's great. All the exposition you need is just <laughs> crime has gone up, <laughs> like a lot, and there's not like... You know, it's not like, oh, there's like some some crazy war going on. People are acting out. People are poor. They're like trying to like ransack stores for food or anything like that. It's just I feel like it almost puts us in the mindset of like the leaders that are in control of the world where it's like it doesn't really matter why. What matters is that it is up 400 percent. What are we going to do? Wall off New York. <laughs> and it's it's really interesting you say that, too, because the I looked at the original draft script and the original narration here actually does give the details of why, mm. which which I'll 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 say now. But I like it better that they decided to change this because I like it better that we don't know why. the The original script it was 1987, not 1988, and it says that there's it says during the summer war of 1989, fought <laughs> between the agencies of law enforcement and the criminal element, the United States police force was formed. As large and well equipped as the armed forces, the police force won the war. In 1990, there were not enough prisons to harbor the 3 million-plus population of convicted criminals. So in 1991, extreme measures were taken to ensure law and order in the United States. That 3 million-plus population that this movie gives, for comparison, in 1990 real world, there were only 1.1 million people incarcerated. 
in the United States. And this movie's saying it was at $3 million. So it's, you know, th- there's almost triple. This movie's saying that the prison population be almost triple what it actually was in real life in 1990. And that gives you a sense of, you know, why the country had to do this. But I like it better here. It's just like the crime's up out of the roof. And, and don't worry about it. It's not, it's not important to the movie why, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All that matters is the world is a mess. <laughs> like, like I love how bare bones it is. It's beautiful. <laughs> Where are you going to stick everybody? Well, Which... you're going to stick everybody in Manhattan, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> here's here's the graphics of the maps you're talking about, Molly. It's a graphic of uh, Manhattan in orange with everything surrounding it in blue. And uh, yeah, one maximum security prison for the entire country. And you know, it's interesting, but you know, I mean, he wrote this movie. John Carpenter wrote the movie in the '70s. And this, you know, the 70s was, was a rough time for New York City. It was, you know, the decade of the famous headline, Ford to City Drop Dead. Uh, Howard Cosell saying, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. Times Square was, mm. it was just, I mean, absolutely disgusting. So it, it fits that someone making this kind of movie at that time would choose Manhattan as the place for this movie to be set. Because it was already kind of going to shit anyway, and we might yeah. as well just scrap it and do it. Yeah. <laughs> God, I, I love that concept. It's just so, like, gonzo and crazy. And, like, what? <laughs> and again, it just begs the question, what kind of state is the world in where they're just like, all right, let's count our losses. We're, you know, got to put these people somewhere. New York, got to go. <laughs> now, I, as the show's uh, resident New Yorker, um, I've got some geography quibbles that I have with uh, the map that we are, have all been raving about. Oh, mm. good. I, uh, have, I actually wrote down in my notes. I was ah, like, okay. I need to make sure that I talk to Eric about this. I, wanna know, <laughs> I want this from the New Yorker's perspective. <laughs> so it says a 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey and the Brooklyn shorelines, mm-hmm. which means that the water that surrounds Manhattan Island essentially acts as a moat in between... Manhattan and the walls, which, you know, leads me to feel like the rest of the city is basically worthless. I mean, what's going to, what's happens to your property values if you're right on the other side of that wall in Jersey or Brooklyn or the Bronx? I mean, you're making Manhattan a prison, but you're really ruining the entire tri-state area when you think about it. (laughs) Sure. I'll take your word for it. So I appreciate show, that. <laughs> you know, it's got to be, right? I mean, would you, I, I, I live in Brooklyn right now. I'm not staying in Brooklyn if they're turning Manhattan into the country's maximum security prison. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get the graphic where they show, the, the, the graphic keeps uh, building. We, they show the green wall. They show five red lines where they mention that all bridges and waterways are mined. Uh, mm-hmm. so that no one can escape from Manhattan. This is interesting the way that they chose to do this. And and I'm just wondering, I don't think they consulted a native New Yorker in (laughs) uh, putting this together because the five red lines appear to show the one at the top of the topmost one is probably the George Washington Bridge. The one that's at the bottom on the left is probably the Holland Tunnel. And then the three ones that are on the right side of the graphic are probably the Queensboro Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge, and the Williamsburg Bridge. Now, the thing is that that means they left off a, a whole bunch of them. It's interesting that they showed only those five because it means it's not depicting the Triborough Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, and the Queens Midtown Tunnel. So they left out about half of those. But even more than that, 
there are a whole bunch of bridges that are known as the free bridges because you don't have to pay to cross any of them between the Bronx and Manhattan. And it's usually what uh, my family uses to avoid paying the tolls on the Triborough Bridge. There's like seven or eight bridges that cross the Harlem River between Manhattan and the Bronx. None of those are depicted either. Whoops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, I know it's a movie, but, you know, I just, I was like, boy, they left like a lot of the crossings off because it says all bridges and waterways are mined. So, it doesn't say anything about them being bombed by any chance? Like maybe bombed? Did it say, I don't forget, what was the exact wording of it? Uh, all bridges and waterways are mined, they said. So maybe they just bombed the remaining bridges? Oh, and, you mean like they just knocked them all down? Mm. Yeah, like they just, you know, dropped them into the water or something. Mm. And like the only remaining ones are for last, you know, last ditch things. I mean, we see later in the movie that there are people that know where the mines are in case right. they need to cross into the city or whatever, but... So I'm, I'm, just, I'm, you know, I'm just spitballing here, just I, trying I, I, to. You know, that, that's a that's a legitimate answer. Yeah, no, I mm-hmm. agree. That, that that could work absolutely. Put it in my head, Canon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, also not depicted on the map is uh, there's an island called Roosevelt Island, which is on the east side of Manhattan, which would have been really fascinating, actually. I think to have that be a part of the movie, non-New Yorks would know it as uh, the island that the tram in, in the first Spider-Man movie goes to. Uh, but <laughs> Goblin, that tram, it's just this—it's this island right there in the East River, in between Manhattan and and Brook and Queens. But it's actually part of Manhattan, uh, so I would assume that that was probably included within the fence. And I think that would have just been a whole cool thing that, you know, because it's a second island that's not actually connected to Manhattan, you know, it probably like, you know, some whole separate society probably set up there or something like that. I think that that would have been a, a cool thing to depict. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then they say the United States police force, like an army, is encamped around the island. I love that. Just like the 400%, it's, the, you know, the 400% like rise in crime. Mm-hmm. Like just throwing United, United States police force, like an army, out there, just as like, there is a United States police force, just accept it, and it's like an army. I just, <laughs> again, like, it sort of explained it a little bit in the uh, exposition that you were reading from the original script, like the crime rate thing. I am glad that they took it out a little bit. It's just, Agreed. this. It, it exists, deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, this really is efficient. Even the the next line, there are no guards inside the prison, only prisoners in the worlds they have made. Oh, that's a really rich line. I love that there's also an acknowledgement that there's, societies that have been built up on the island that you can, I mean, nothing is explained here, but you can kind of imagine that there's, you know, different cliques and different groups. And, you know, we get into that a little bit as we get further on to the movie, but I just, I, I love that little image there. Yeah. And also, and it's, and as you said, Molly, he's the worlds they have made plural. So you're mm-hmm. right. It means like, you know, it's almost like the society that we see in this movie for all we know, you know, that could be just one of, you know, five or six major communities that Snake came into contact with. You know, the Duke might not even, contr- you know, might only control like one small segment of Manhattan for all we know. Right, right. Because if you're talking about three million people all living on the island, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's a gigantic city, right? essentially. So yeah, it stands to reason that there's all kinds of different uh, social structures and societies. This is just a slice of what we're seeing. And, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, Sam. Well, I'm just, I'm just wondering, are you, either of you guys uh, big Batman comic fans at all? I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Somewhat. Because <laughs> there was a storyline that ran uh, for a really long time, actually. I think it was like over a year, maybe even close to two years, called No Man's Land. And 
I was struck rewatching this movie recently that the how much of a ripoff No Man's Land is of the storyline where basically, you know, Gotham's like a stand in for Manhattan, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's the same type of thing where they uh, they just section it off. It com- it's completely quarantined from the world. No one goes in or out for like over a year or something like that. And uh, that line about the prisoners in the worlds they've made like that, it, it totally is like realized in that Batman comic where like all the supervillains have their own little like sectors that they've like uh, s- sectioned off of the city where it's like, Oh, you don't want to go into penguins territory or Riddler's territory or whatever. And mm. like all the gangs sort of follow them. And that was exactly what I was thinking. Like you were talking about like, Oh, maybe, you know, maybe the, the Duke only controls a small portion of New York. And that's uh, this most recent viewing. That was totally something that I was thinking about was like, what if they like go all the way to the other side of the city? Like I don't know the geography that well, mm-hmm. uh, but like you know the Duke is he's hot stuff, and <laughs> well, you know where he is. But like it, who else out is out there? Like who, what are the other big huge like crime bosses that are like ruling a portion of the city with an iron fist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at the comics angle. Even in in the Marvel universe, even the Kingpin, who's the Kingpin of crime, he he faces right, and he's based in Manhattan. He's he's got rivals. Exactly. Love it. <laughs> I, I mean, I love that's I think that's the fun thing about this movie. Uh, and it's like you were talking about with the it was Roosevelt Island, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I love that. There's nothing that says that that can't be something that's there. Like, right. That, that houses like a completely separate society. Uh, I feel like the movie re- really it's such a specific story, but like it actually like scratches the surface of a, a much larger world that I'm super curious about like you know even aside from what caused uh, what caused like America to be like all right we're you know this is our one massive security prison like even within the prison there's like so many different things that can be explored there and like it thought about and considered it's, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's such a fun universe that they're creating literally just like 30 seconds into this little burst of exposition that's a, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This definitely has a lot of legs to it. I'm I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't end up turning this into a TV show, just I for think, that yeah. reason. You know? Oh it, yeah, that would have been be, great. Yeah, totally. Oh, now I'm angry that there's no Escape from New York TV show. It'd be so I'm good. Su- <laughs> I'm surprised there's not at least more movies. Like I've actually never seen Escape from LA, so I don't even know what how that connects to any of this. But I'm surprised they didn't like. The studios didn't try to like turn this into even more of a franchise. Not not necessarily something featuring Snake Plissken or whatever, but just you know additional stuff that takes place in this world. Like mm-hmm. it seems like such a such a rich vein that they've mm-hmm. stumbled upon, and uh, I'm surprised nobody capitalized on it. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, um, I know there've been some comic books. I've never read any of them. I know they've you know in more recent memory there've been some comic books, but I don't know if they're set you know in New York. I think it's more Snake Plissken roaming the land kind of. I don't think it's you know. <laughs> I don't think it's Manhattan based. It's more about Snake Plissken. Yeah, uh, Escape from LA. I don't remember if we mentioned this or not in the pilot, Molly, but because uh, other people have asked me, we're not doing Escape from LA, everyone. We're only <laughs> doing this. Um, that movie sucks. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do have a, a curiosity that I know I shouldn't satisfy, but I, I want to know. I want to know. <laughs> it will disappoint you. It will disappoint you. <laughs> I've actually never seen it. I, I don't know if it, I mean, I'm going to take your word for it that it sucks. I mean, <laughs> on a sl- somewhat side note, uh, the animation that we do see here um, 
it, it is for reals animation and it was done by John Wash and he's another one of um, John Carpenter's crew. Um, they went to film school together at USC um, and he's worked on uh, Dark Star with him and uh, worked with Dan O'Bannon. So I just want to give a little little shout out there. I think uh, one of the animation things that's kind of interesting and that you know, we will talk about it in, in future minutes is that computer animation, which we somewhat, I think, take for granted in terms of uh, its ease and in- inexpensiveness now was quite expensive at the time that this was produced. And so there's quite a bit of uh, these uh, wireframe scenes that I presume to be, you know, all cutting edge computer technology. And it's not. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> uh, but uh, this this is a, a legitimately animated piece. Yeah, as incredibly basic as this sequence is here where we get this after after the map fades away then they show uh the new york skyline with the statue of liberty in front of it 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 was incredibly expensive for them to do uh because of the technology at the time Uh, i was (laughs) it cracks me up like just even that image um you know for the most part i'm like willing to accept everything this movie's blasting at me at face value (laughs) but um (laughs) just for some reason like when it it does this cool, like, sort of wireframe image of New York skyline and then the Statue of Liberty and then, I, I, I think, a little bit of the border of the river or maybe, like, that indicates where the wall is or something like that. And it looks, you know, kind of like a photograph. Like, you're seeing it not mm-hmm. from above. You're, like, looking at it, like, as you were, uh, like, on the shore looking towards uh, Manhattan or something like that. It makes me think, like, what what is this? Is this, like, some sort of, like, educational program or something, like, is this is it it literally just exists within it's just for theater goers of actual uh you know the real world <laughs> um i don't know just like it's such abstract imagery and it's so i don't know there's just something about it that sort of cracks me up a little bit i mean i love the way it looks and i love it but <laughs> like trying to for some reason that's where i had to like i started to parse out like uh, i mean it felt like this could be like an educational uh video that maybe they're showing people like uh on their first day when they're gonna like go work guarding the walls or something like that (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) that's an amazing idea i would loved to see them produce the here's your first day of work like don't fall in the river like this is what you need to watch out for (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can see like the, the the silly little animations that poorly acted, where like it'll show some guy walking too close to the edge of the wall, and then he starts to uh, fall over, and it freeze frames, and it's like with an alarm sound. It says, "Don't walk too close. Make sure you're always near railing." Something like that. <laughs> well, they also have these like crazy, and we'll talk about these crazy helmets, you know. So that would be the other thing of like if you've got your helmet like flipped up, like the, the face shield flipped up, like be careful when you go to the bathroom, like don't like, <laughs> don't like walk into anything, just like be mindful of your surroundings. Cause it's kind of epic. So something I was really happy about, I'm sure you guys probably talked about it a lot last week, but um, I'm glad that I still got like a, a decent chunk in this minute of John Carpenter music. Yeah. Oh yeah. Theme song. Yep. Theme song continues into this minute. Yep. Because I love John Carpenter music. Ah, okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a super fan or anything mm-hmm. like that. I just, whenever I'm hearing it, I love like music that he does. I love music of the style like of John Carpenter. He's just, I love this wonderful minimalist uh, synth aesthetic that he has. <laughs> I uh, 
on the way here, uh, on the way home today, knowing that I was going to be recording this, I, I put on a playlist on my way home from work, just of John Carpenter music on YouTube, and I was I was loving it. <laughs> and uh, I, I love I like the um, the Escape from New York theme a lot. It's it's surprisingly upbeat, I think, for um, how sort of bleak this movie can be mm. in, in a lot of ways. And uh, so I was I was really grateful to get to be on a minute with some. Solid John Carpenter Escape from New York theme music. What That's are sweet. what are um what are a couple of other other uh, themes that you like? Well, of course, Halloween. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I just honestly, I am like happy to put on a playlist and just uh, like live in that synthy world. Uh, one of the ones that came on as I was driving home today, which I wasn't even that familiar with, and then I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! Was the uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen? That's definitely going to be uh, something that I return to a lot. And I'm wondering, are, are I don't know, are either of you guys um, all that fond of John Carpenter music in general? Like, how do you feel about his sort of minimalist scores, this movie or even uh, his other movies? Yeah, we talked uh, uh, about that last week that, um, I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't call myself necessarily a big fan of his music, but, you know, that we both like that his music is very simple but effective. I think that's the phrase we use, right, Molly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really like synth. God help me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get uh, it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I love the. I just love the aesthetic of this movie so much. You know, I I love the the apocalyptic nature. I love that there's and really this is, you know, part of the the cream of that genre of like in that ter- that terminator style vein of like driving early 80s synth with everything's gone to shit and it's dark and it's gritty and mm. you know I, I i can't really separate 80s synth from that i mean i think that there's i don't know if i talked about this before but there's even you know some like throwback electronica you know vaporwave you know that that takes in the aesthetics of the the early 80s the the patrick nagel you know, pastels, wireframe, you know, yes. <laughs> stuff. And and you can't really, you know, divorce that from the, the synth that is this. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a John Carpenter music fan, but I have tremendous respect for, you know, his artistry and being that great of a musician and that great of a visionary and being able to combine that with filmmaking, for sure. Um, have you ever heard of, um, they're like a, this French... Uh, techno duo. They've been around for a really long time called Zombie Zombie. No, no, I haven't heard of them. Okay. Well, their whole vibe, they are John Carpenter obsessed and their whole (laughs) vibe is uh, John Carpenter style music. I've actually listened to them much more than actual John Carpenter music. Their whole thing is they are either heavily sampling John Carpenter movie soundtracks or sound effects in their songs they're or they're covering John Carpenter, or they're just doing original music that sounds a lot like John Carpenter music, and it is—it's all I like. I all, I love it. They've been like around for a really long time. I don't know how involved John Carpenter is with it. I don't know if he's a fan or anything like that. Mm. But but uh, yeah, that's it's just something. What if you're if you're into that kind of vibe, like, and you want to hear it maybe a little less atmospheric, a little more musical or a little more mm-hmm. dancey. Like I definitely recommend zombie zombie there. Sweet. Thank they you for the recommendation. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, all right. Um, well, that pretty much ends the minute. Sam, why don't you uh, let everyone know where else they can hear you? 
Uh, yeah, thanks. I, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I'm a co-host of two other podcasts. One of them is Reopening the Wormhole. It is a Deep Space Nine podcast. Uh, if you're a Star Trek fan, check it out. We um, go through. We've been going through that entire show in random order, which is, you know, it's fun. And um, <laughs> and we're honestly we're getting kind of close to the end. So if you want to catch wow. up, there's a huge backlog. Uh, but we'll be wrapping up in a couple months, and it's great. You know, I, I love it. I love Deep Space Nine. You're welcome to join, listeners. I'm sure you'll get something out of it if you're a Star Trek fan. Sweet, sweet. <laughs> well, thank you, Sam, for joining us today on episode four. And of course, Sam will be here all week. Um, yeah. You can, yay! <laughs> <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter at NYMinutePod and also the Facebook group Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. Um, please rate and review us on iTunes if you feel so moved. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.